You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. 3CR and Uprise Radio are produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Kulin Nation. We recognise that this is unceded, unceded and stolen land, and we would like to pay our respects to ancestors and elders, past, present and future. And we recognise that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We support overwhelming majority of are incredible in every way. And devoted public service. And I'm in the White House and I was fired president, please. I said, let's go to Iraq. Sheesh. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. Feeling a bull while I'm watching CNN. The president's a racist. When will it CNN? It's difficult to take hate. Think about it. Only a racist will race Only a racist. If you're a black man or you an immigrant that speaks Spanish, you ain't in a safe, ain't place. In a safe place. You got to worry about your life again. Worry. They're trying to make America white again. Grab him by the pussy and he don't like blacks. Trump don't like Mexicans. He don't like ass. Trump again, unless they alternative, 545 and Mike Pence, cause it don't make sense, we need a better alternative, a better alternative, the president, if I'm from a shithole, his speech is venomous, this what we bang out for, we some grown ass that was De La Soul with uh, Rescind the 45, and this is Uprise Radio, back in the studio after a bit of a break, and it's nice to be back. Uh, it's inauguration day in the United States and the first point of call for Kamala Harris and Joe Biden as they shake the snow off their shoulders landing in an icy Washington, D.C. was attending a memorial for America's now 400,000 dead from COVID-19. And meanwhile, Donald Trump released a farewell video promising his story and his political movement was only just beginning. He will not be attending the inauguration, breaking a 160-year tradition in the United States. And 25,000 National Guard vetted for Trump allegiance, will stand guard in the armed encampment of the Capitol, with multiple plots for further violence already discovered online. This blend of political unrest, a global pandemic and geopolitical flux has lent a surreal quality to the opening of 2021, a year already revealing itself as 2020's close neighbour, despite the wishes for a clean slate many clung to as the new year approached. I'm Jackson and I've obviously got James here uh, on the line with me as well. Howdy, James. Hello, Jackson, and hello to everyone. I hope everyone has been having a good start to the year. Yeah, but I think, um, you know, there's a lot to say about Trump and I guess the ins and outs of, um, you know, his movements uh, over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, perhaps we might get into talk about some of that as well, um, what happened with the Capitol protests and things. But, you know, I think what really concerns me as well, and I think it's something that, you know, both laid the groundwork for someone like Trump to be president and for the alternative being Joe Biden is, you know, there's a real failure of the left. You know, what is the left? And I think we've seen a re-emergence in some ways in the US with Black Lives Matter movement. But where where is that taking us? Because I'm concerned about, you know, people being bored and blinded by the mediocrity of Joe Biden to accepting something that we can't accept. And I think that, you know, like you said from the start, 400,000 people have died in the US and yet we still are going to go 
into a new presidency with someone who is not going to have universal health care. It's not going to, you know, definitely going to be a much better response to the pandemic than what Trump has had. But I'm concerned about that, about the economic situation there, what that means. But mostly I think it's really concerning what it means for the rest of the world. What does an America that is, you know, weakened in the corner and they feel, they feel like they're boxing with China and what does that going to mean for perhaps a more hawkish government for the next four years? Yeah, I think those ramifications are really important and, and I'm worried about them as well. Um, we're lucky today. I, I want to get our guest in as quick as possible um, because I think it's it's very relevant to his field of expertise. Um, I've got Dennis Glover joining us. He's a historian, a speech writer and an author. And we are going to talk a bit about his recent novel, Factory 19, which was released last year by Black Ink Books. But first, I just want to touch on these recent events that we're discussing. Um, Dennis published an article in Fairfax last weekend titled The US Cannot Ignore the Lessons of History, which made a sound comparison between the Trump-inspired violent assaults on Capitol Hill last week and Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch, which occurred in Munich nearly 98 years earlier in 1923. Now, both men, Trump and Hitler, in spite of their dubious qualities as people, let alone as politicians, managed to gain the adoration of what Dennis called a discontented army, those who feel left behind by the profound economic and cultural changes unleashed by economic busts and rapid technological change, both then and now. And both these men inspired chaotic assaults on their relevant democratic republics, which ended in bloody failure. But 10 years later, Hitler would be German chancellor. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, Dennis, welcome to Uprise Radio. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Dennis, you point out that both Trump and Hitler's supporters are seen or were depicted as laughable, deplorable, irredeemable figures. Yet one of your prescriptions for avoiding Trump's triumphant return is to emotionally connect with these very people's sense of loss. Why should we be emphasising with Trump's base, many of whom were photographed making white power salutes in images from a fortnight ago? I think because of the parallels with the, the 20s and 30s. If you look um, at the, the sort of the ragtag army that Hitler put together um, for his beer pool, Paul Putsch and others, you know, these sort of people were written off by the establishment as, um, look, this isn't a real revolution. It's nothing to really get worried about. Um, they're just you know, a bunch of a bunch of idiots, you know, um, pretty unimpressive sort of crowd of people. But the thing is that these sorts of people um, can change the course of history as the 20s and 30s showed. Now, you know, there's nothing, there's no excuse for racism. There's no excuse for the appalling behaviour that these people um, displayed in Washington last week. But I think we do need to understand why these people are just so on the outer from the American establishment and mainstream politics. And um, it's because, and, and I'm not the only person to say this, of course, it's because for the last 50, you know, about the last 50 years, they haven't, these people haven't had a pay rise. Their standard of living has declined. Their factory towns have shut and moved to other countries. They don't have a stake in a stable society they don't have a stake in american democracy anymore and this makes them dangerous um as i said there's no excuse for their the attitudes they display but um, we have to try and understand where it comes from and i think um the the story from all this is that uh, looking after these people, creating jobs, creating a more equal economy isn't just a sort of a, a social democratic wish list anymore. It's a, it's a democratic imperative. You know, democracy 
depends upon a certain amount of fairness and economic stability and in their absence people are pushed to the extremes and it's and it's and it undermines democracy what the, and this is really the big lesson of the 20s and 30s and this is where john maynard keynes came from to devise his theories about this about stabilizing capitalism Mm. Yes. We've seen in Australia as well, Dennis, I guess from John Howard really was able to um, capture some of that disenfranchised working class in Australia as well. Um, you know, the Howard Battlers and, and then kind of famously in, in Tasmania as well with um, parts of the CFMEU there. And I think that we've seen Morrison really try to do that as well. well mm. What does what do you think, you know, I guess the... Um, the unions, the parliamentary left, and the rest of the um, people that, as you say, are trying to fight for democratic kind of justice. How, how do we kind of work towards winning those people over? You know, I think that there's a wider issue at play here. And I think it's about the destruction of, of the sort of a world that no longer really exists that underpinned the union and the labor movement. You know, the, the trade unions came out of the industrial revolution um and uh and they gave birth to the labor party and you know to social democratic politics in the 19th century and that survived until the 70s or the 80s and then all of a sudden it was wiped out and and um i don't think it's it's no coincidence that once the factory world started to disappear um that the unions started to get weak and the basis for labor and social democratic politics started to be undermined and I and I think this is this important sort of sociological cause behind this when you think of a factory say with 5,000 people working in it this put there's a logic to the factory that leads people leads to the empowerment of people so if you've got 5,000 factory workers together they're going to have a union that's going to influence their politics they're going to have clubs they're going to have a whole social milieu built up around them they they have a sense that they have power the little people have power. And um, once all that's gone and people were reduced to, um, you know, independent contractors and so forth, uh, that political logic disappears. And mm. the logic and the logic for them becomes, well, I need a tax cut so I can run my small business and so forth. And the whole Labor program starts to collapse. So I think, I think when we look around at, you know, the Labor Party now and the turmoil that it's in, um, the, the, the unions and some of the turmoil that they're in, I think um, it's easy to blame individuals in, and individual politicians, but in fact, this is part of a long-term undermining of, of the logic and the logical case for the left. Um, how do we overcome that? Well, wow, what a big question for us, um, you know, uh, as we face the future. What does social democracy mean? Um, in an Australia where you know the the affluent where the working class is so much more affluent than it was, so much more independent society than it was, what does social democracy mean? That's the sort of question that the Labor Party and the Labor movement has to put some intellectual energy into thinking through. Mm. Your book, uh, your new book, Dennis Factory yeah. Nineteen, you know certainly imagines a world where instead of um, you know creating some new innovative to use some some uh, some tech speak that you might find a bit dis distasteful instead of new innovative creative ideas the idea is you know is to go back 
to, to go forward, as it were, a return to this kind of utopian idea of the factory. And, and when I was reading it, I, I was struck by a, a stat that I read in uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book recently about surveillance capitalism, yeah. that at, at the height of their um, market capitalization, GE employed over 700,000 Americans. And Facebook, you know, recently hit the same mark of, 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 of valuation. It employs 17,000 workers. Yeah. You know, so there is, yeah. you know, just, you know, automatically this huge distance. But the book really you know, really targets the changes in the social order and in the cultural life of people beyond wages, but, you know, through the introduction of the internet and this machine age that we're living in and the way that that's changed um, people's interactions and people's lives, people's working lives. And to give a, a brief synopsis for our listeners, you know, the book is narrated by a burnt-out Canberra speechwriter who is sick of endless 1am emails and constant instant messaging from his boss, uh, you know, this unnamed prime minister, and he, and he leaves, you know, and he, and he forms a kind of colony of, out, of outcasts who you call, uh, adequately called the disrupted, you know, and, the, and they reject the internet and they reject Uber and they reject Airbnb and all of these uh, disrupting paradigms which have stripped away, along with neoliberalism and globalization, you know, some of the... Um, you know, some of the, the glory days that you're talking about, you know, some of the conscious unionism, the secure jobs, social traditions that underpin the classical working class. And I wonder, you know, reading about this character, you know, this uh, this speechwriter fed up with, with the way of things in Canberra, you yourself were a speechwriter in Canberra. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the way that this, you know, what people have called this fourth industrial revolution, this this data revolution has impacted your life, your vocational life and, and your social life? What changes have, have you noticed? Well, let's start off with the job of a speechwriter. You know, there's a sort of an old romantic image of the speechwriter's job. And I managed to live part of this during, um, I think it was the 2004 election campaign. I was, um, and I want to apologise in advance, Mark Latham, speechwriter. Oh, <laughs> and um, I spent part of... Um, I spent uh, that part of that campaign locked up in the Renaissance Hotel on Sydney Harbour with Graham Freudenberg, and um, to write the the leader's speech for the conference. And our um, our modus operandi was um, I don't smoke, but anyway, Freudenberg smoked his way through a pack of cigarettes whilst we drank a bottle of whiskey and scribbled down notes towards um, making the leader's speech for the for the election campaign. And, the, and that's how it used to be done, you know, um, uh, just doing it longhand, thinking it through, you know. It was a sort of a, a wonderfully enjoyable process. But now the, uh, the job of speech writing consists of typing up a draft um, after a series of Zoom meetings, um, uh, circulating it, and then people use the networking software to get back to you by making thousands of comments in the margins. And this could be dozens of people doing this. And what's happened is that um, it stops the formation of a sort of a flowing, well thought out magisterial speech and turns it into a series of bullet points which use business, business logic that's built into the software programs. And so in a sense, um, our thinking and our speaking comes to reflect the logic of the computer world. And this is the sort of thing Shoshana Zuboff um, writes about um, in her book. And I sort of felt this for myself. And so in my novel, um, the character is doing this and he has the most, you know, um, dramatic nervous breakdown in history. It, it, it makes its way around, the, you know, it goes viral around the world. And this becomes the basis for him becoming part of his colony, which sets out 
to reject um, the internet because a lot of writers, um, you know, have thought about this. What do we do about this world that we're creating, the world of the internet, um, the world of software, and, you know, the world of mobile phones and so forth. And, they, and there's lots of dystopian approaches to this. So I just started by the, assuming, well, let's abolish it all and start again without it. So take the world back to the late 1940s before the computer breaks free of the mainframe and gets out into the world. And before the development of the RAND Corporation um, in March right. 1948 to, to make yeah. the date very specific. Now, I just want to say as well that Factory 19, this idealised utopian return to 1948, is the brainchild of a very familiar Tasmanian billionaire named Dundas Fawcett, he of the gambling squillions and the underground modern art gallery. And, and he brings everyone back. But there's a lot of focus. You know, there's a scene where refugees arrive from Amazon, you know, fleeing the tyranny of Jeff Bezos, you know. And there's, there's a lot of focus recently about the tyranny of these social media and data companies and, and their role in our, um, you know, our growing extremism, our, our growing political polarization. But I think Factory 19 does a really great job of highlighting how the social bonds have been lost in the last 30 years. And it's, it's a very, it's nostalgic and I wasn't even there. And, and I wanted to ask, I know you grew up in a factory town, much like the one depicted in Factory 19 in, in Doveton in, in um, southeastern Melbourne. You know, could you talk a little bit about what these social bonds were and how you think they could be rebuilt, perhaps without the drastic measures that Dundas forced it goes through? Well, you know, for those who don't know, Doveton's a suburb just near Dandenong, um, down the, you know, 35 minutes on a good day down the Princess Highway um, from the centre of the city. Um, Doveton was built in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, um, around a series of big auto plants. It's like, um, you know, in that movie um, um, about Flint, Michigan, um, you know, the one I'm talking about, um, that it's, it's a bit like that. Doveton was like, um, it was like the Detroit of, of Melbourne. It had um, three or four car plants in it, a canning factory. And my dad worked in, in the auto plant as a, as a car assembler. My mother, um, worked in the canteen at the factory. My sisters worked in the in the factory, in the canning factory. I worked in the canning factory when I wasn't at university, making money. Um, and uh, you know, it was a sort of a, a little world. It had almost zero unemployment. Um, the working class back then, in if you go back to the early mid seventies, had had almost zero unemployment, and they were affluent. You know, uh, they weren't educated people but they had comparatively um, high incomes, um, you know, because mum had a job in the factory, dad had a job in the factory and the kids had jobs. So for every house in, in Doveton, there, was, there were two or three jobs. So the working class had it good in some ways and much better than they have it now. Uh, and it, it was a good way of life. And that's the sort of thing I wanted to, I wanted to talk about in the novel. You see, I, I've always wanted to write about where I grew up, but often this is reflected in um, social realist novels, you know, about drug abuse and, and general, you know, sense of hopelessness and disillusionment and so forth. I wanted to recreate the world of the working class as a, as a fun and positive um, way of life because it was a good life for people at that time and there was upward mobility. All of my friends, all of my working class friends from school whose dads worked in factories and so forth, 
they're um they're all doing very well they went to university and they're, they're you know they're really well off and um that world worked and i wanted to help recreate it and i think it worked because of um one thing mainly full employment multiple factory jobs in um in each family and i think um i think that that's a crucial thing to grasp because places um, go downhill in the absence of work and our, our our number one thing for the working class is should again should be to create jobs for them and we used to we used to subsidize these sorts of factory jobs I mean the car industry was heavily subsidized until it was completely closed down by the current government and um, I think we have to get back to it again but by looking to you know, are looking to support industry that provides jobs for these sorts of people, sorts of people who don't necessarily go to university, um, but who who should be given a decent standard of living, at the sort of income where and job security where they can buy a house um, and have a stake in society and not end up, you know, in the protests in Washington with the sort of people who who support Donald Trump. Um, Dennis, I guess, um, you know, a lot of these places, um, similarly to the US and Australia that, you know, like you said, um, car manufacturers and other um, yeah. factories and places have closed over the past kind of 20 years or so. Um, and I think, you know, one of the big failings of government, like you said, these were subsidised. And, you know, while I, I'm sure many listeners will not be that sad to see the car industry um, perhaps, you know, going a different direction because of, um, you know, greener kind of economic interests and looking at the environment, there's a real um, opportunity there. And I think something which is happening with the Ford factory in Geelong and and can happen at many more of these um, manufacturing places is to move to uh, green industrial yes, um, factories. And, yeah. and I think on top of that, I think the pandemic really showed us that we can't rely solely on international manufacturing. You know, we need to be able to, we can't, you know, have 85% of a um, tin made here and be relying on China for the other 15%, you know, we, we should be making that here. And that, like you said, I think that needs government influence to be able to say, well, we want to make that in, you know, Doveton or Geelong or Newcastle or any of these places that, you know, are crying out for that kind of work opportunity. You know, being a, a, an industrial manufacturing country is a choice that we make. It's not a, something that comes to us naturally. We don't, we don't currently, um, you know, uh, survive on iron ore and coal, and and such like um, because we have to. It's because we've made a choice to be that sort of economy. I mean, Germany, mm. uh, the great car manufacturing and a great industrial engineering economy. That's because it chooses to do that, and it educates its people in you know in in certain ways to bring that about. And that's what we need to do. And I and I think this is. I think there's probably an even wider point still than about bringing back manufacturing. And that is in that, in the old world that I describe in my novel and that I grew up in, in Doveton, it wasn't so much that there was manufacturing. It was that the people who led us had a vision of a society and an economy that had something for everyone, included everybody. You think of Doveton, just like um, Bobby town in my, in my novel factory 19, it was um, it was a sort of a, a, utopia, a utopian ideal. This idea that we would bring these people from around the world, give them jobs, give them good, well-paid, unionised, um, solid jobs, 
um, in factories, build lovely houses for them. I mean, and, and those housing commission houses don't look much now, but, you know, 50, 60 years ago, for people coming from Europe, they were quite luxurious, you know, a big, you know, a three bedroom house with a big yard with a swimming pool in the backyard and so forth. That sounds we luxurious would... now, Dennis. Very luxurious to anyone my age. That <laughs> yeah. sounds extremely luxurious. Yeah. Well, well, yes, you see. Um, and it's, but it, there's a sort of utopian element to this, you know, like those old, you know, Cadbury fact, Cadbury towns in, in the UK, um, that we would build a town for working people. Um, we'd, give, we'd, put, we'd put a health centre there, we'd put in shops, nice schools for their children to go to, um, good public education, um, all sorts of, all, you know, all sorts of social supports, plus a house and a job. I mean, for ordinary uneducated people, we used to be, but by, by current standards, what we were 50, 60 years ago was a utopian society. You know what I mean? Are you and, a little uh, bit discounting some of the progress that has been made, for, you know, for people who maybe live outside the margins of a mainstream society, you know, like whether it be, you know, the gains made by, you know, the gay liberation movement or, you know, women's oh, liberation, you know, like I think 1948 yeah. wasn't a utopia for everyone. No, no, indeed. I don't think that, um, I don't think that, that just because you have factories, you can't have gay rights and you can't have recognition of Indigenous people and, um, and you know, and a reasonable amount of identity politics. I mean, the factories were, <laughs> factories were um, full of people from um, minority groups where, you know, the, the factories that I worked in and my parents worked in, every, you know, they're, they're, I knew gay people who worked there. Um, they were great places for women to work. I mean, my mother spent a whole life working in factories. So did my sisters. One of them still does. Mm. And um, there were plenty of good jobs for them too. I mean, there was nothing essentially about the factory life that was um, racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever. We can chew gum and walk at the same time. Dennis, you know, we can have a decent economy and a decent society as well. Yeah, can I ask on that point, you know, you were talking before about, you know, there's some affluence amongst the working class or middle class today. Certainly everyone has access to credit. Everyone goes, or a lot of people go to university, a lot more people, but those university degrees seem to be uh, worth less than they were or, or seem less of a guarantee of a job than they were historically. I just wonder, why do you think we have this kind of crisis of vision in the West at the moment? You know, this crisis of being able to say, this is the standard, this is the kind of things we want to seek for we want, we want people to feel connected to their communities you know we talk we talk about these words all the time but there doesn't seem to be the follow-through from government not just in australia but in in a lot of western countries we're seeing a backsliding in these utopian ideas you're talking about why are politicians so afraid to kind of take a visionary stand well i think it all it's all down to you know the big intellectual changes that happened in the 1970s um into the 1980s um you know at the end of the the end of the Second World War, um, the you know the the great powers got together, listened to people like John Maynard Keynes and others, and created societies in which ordinary people had a had a real solid economic stake. You know their living standards massively increased um, in the um, from the 1950s to the 1970s. This stuff that um, Thomas Piketty talks about, you know, the, the glorious 30 years, the working class's living standards um, increased. And that's why you had this political stability in the West, um, because people had a stake in it and it worked for them and it delivered a better life for them and growing equality. But what happened, of course, from the 70s onwards with the 
Thatcherite and Reaganite reaction um, against this um, was uh, all of a sudden the very things that led to disaster during the 1920s and 30s and led to the Second World War started to reappear, all that inequality. And our political system became unstable. What I think has happened is we've forgotten um, that, uh, that the importance of, keep it, of, of creating a society in which the little people have a solid stake and a, and a rising standard of living. That's the secret source for success, for democracy. And once you forget that and you think that you can just have a winner-take-all society and, and people at the bottom missing out, you're in trouble. And, and I know that now that there's a lot of working-class affluence. I mean, a lot of my family members who are still working-class um, are probably materially better off than they were. Um, they have jobs in the trades. Um, they have nice houses bigger cars than than we had but for the ones who just fall below that who can't get a can't get a, a solid grip on the economy things are much worse than they used to be yeah. we are swiftly running out of time it's a big conversation i think you know that returning to the winner takes all mentality certainly brings us nicely back to the donald in in washington and his uh his ideology and um how that's struck a chord with people but um thanks heaps for joining us today dennis the book's out on Black Ink Books. It's a really good read. I won't spoil the ending by answering whether people can find happiness in the past, but uh, uh, it's definitely worth picking up and checking out. Yeah, thanks heaps for joining us today on Uprise Radio. My pleasure, guys. See you later. Thanks, James. Um, And I'll take us out with uh, a little bit of music, uh, this time a little bit of Public Enemy. Uh, Thanks for listening. See you, everyone. Stay away from me. Mister, I am the law, and you are not. In fact, I'm God. I got a lot. Mr. these United Breaks take over, come over. Orange hair, fear the comb over. Here's another scare, keep them hands in the air. Better not breathe, you dare not dare. Don't say nothing, don't think nothing. Make America great again, the middle just love it. When you want to talk, walk y'all straight to them ovens. Human beings of color, yeah, we be suffering. suffering. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.